0: Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Friday, October the 16th. It's every kid's dream come true. If you are a Star Wars fan, how about an actual working retractable lightsaber? It's been made by a Canadian team in Kitchener-Waterloo. We'll get the skinny on that coming up next. The big story of the week is that 36-year-old cold case being closed yesterday uh the case sur- uh surrounding christine jessup nine-year-old christine jessup who was murdered 36 years ago and uh this was a stunning development in that cold case when toronto police announced that they had identified the now deceased calvin hoover as the man who killed jessup um back in 1984 and they did this although he has been dead since 2015 through an identification made using genetic genealogy. It's an investigative technique. And I wanted to know more about this technique. So we've we've invited Dr. David Middleman, who is the CEO of Authrum, a genetic laboratory that works exclusively with law enforcement to provide leads and identify subjects through DNA in the States, uh, onto the program. Toronto Police had uh, reached out to them to help with this investigation. So, Dr. Middleman, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Othram and, and what you do.
2: Yeah, so Othram is, uh, we're, we're, we're based in Texas, uh, and, and, and what we do is we take evidence or DNA uh, material from evidence of crime scenes, and sometimes there's evidence that has been deemed unsuitable. Maybe there's not enough DNA or the DNA is degraded. We take this evidence that's, uh, however challenging, uh, and has led to a case stalling and becoming cold, and we re- work the evidence, uh, perform a lot of testing and other kinds of techniques on the evidence, and, and try to extract as much information as we can so that we can pass that information back to investigators and allow them to basically move an investigation forward. So we like to, you know, we tell people we specialize in unsolvable cold cases. where are um, the only laboratory in the United States that does end-to-end processing with this technique from evidence to answers, is how we explain it. And, um, and this is all we do, as you noted. We're a forensics-only lab. There's no other other kind of product that we offer. And we work within the context of a law enforcement investigation.
0: How long have you been working with law enforcement on cold cases?
2: So we started the company uh, in 2018. Uh, the, the team that I've got and myself, we've, we've got decades of experience in DNA testing, but in other areas. Uh, we, in 2018, we started offering and, and decided to focus exclusively on uh, on law enforcement and forensic analysis.
0: So our quest, like as in us being the public and our quest to find out our genealogy and find out where we came from, is really helping when it comes to cold cold cases out there and wrapping them up. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how uh, genetic genealogy works and how you use these databases that are just uploaded, now, people give consent. By the way that they that people can other people can look and, and use their uh th- their data as far as their DNA that I, they upload. But how do you use it? How does the process work?
2: Sure, that's a good question. So, so I do want to note that genealogy is one of multiple, as they would say, like tools in the tool belt that you could use once you've pulled genetic information. But but specific to your question about genealogy, uh, there are there are databases that you can utilize. Um, And as you noted, generally uh, you'll you'll opt in uh, if you want to participate and help uh, possibly identify a victim that is unnamed in a crime. There's a lot of unknown victims that have yet to be identified, and you can't work a crime for someone you don't know. And then also the flip side, as in this case, uh, perpetrators to crimes. So there 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 are many folks, I think the estimate is about 40 million, that have tested with some consumer company at some point uh, to learn something about their ancestors or their relatives, and and when these folks uh, participate, and there's there's many databases. We have one called DNA dot com. That one is only for law enforcement. There's no other reason to to join. So if you go to DNA Falls, your data is used for law enforcement, but you can't do anything else with it. Uh, there's this other. Why would you do that?
0: Just to interrupt, I, I'm just curious. Yeah. So so I think I think
2: the number one reason you do it is uh, is like I said, you want to do in the United States. We have this like a uh, kind of mass mass backlog that is growing of unidentified folks, um, and not necessarily always the, the result of a crime. Sometimes people that have died uh, accidentally or through some other means, and they will remain unidentified forever because traditional forensic testing um, in the states, for example, is built around CODIS, and, and that's the database of convicted uh, criminals. And, and most victims are not convicted criminals. And so uh, I believe the statistics in the United States is that CODIS will help identify unknown remains, uh, you know, like 1% of the time. And then even for various kinds of crimes, like CODIS is effective in in, in, in kind of identifying repeat crimes, but like the Sex Assault Kit Initiative to clear the backlog of Sex Assault Kit, it works for like 15% of the time. So there's there's this growing number of cases where they've done DNA testing and they don't they don't know who, who's involved in the crime, um, the victim or perpetrator. And then on top of that, there's also... Uh, a lot of a lot of evidence, uh, some of these older cases, the evidence isn 't even suitable all the time for for conventional testing they, they just can 't access the information that they need. Um, the, the evidence in this case uh, in, in, in christine Jessup's case this is very old evidence it was degraded it, it really wasn 't suitable for most testing and so so there 's two aspects to it. One is we can identify people um, and help sort out a case that otherwise wouldn 't get sorted out because. You know, CODIS is not uh, an encompassing of all information. And the other is that we can, we can access information from evidence that just others wouldn't be able to. And, and if you can't unlock information, then there is no genealogy and there's no investigative process. So I think, I think it's a laboratory innovation and a, an a information innovation. Uh, but back to your point, there, there are some folks that, that want to help and, and they do, and, and there's some that don't. It's something that you should decide if you want to participate in or not. And, and for those that do, um, I have to tell you, it's, uh, the impact is, is tremendous, not just on the family of the victim, but also, uh, particularly in this case, but in other cases the war, There's this peripheral damage, um, you know, folks that have been under suspicion, in this case wrongfully accused and in and, and, and imprisoned. Um, the best way to exonerate someone is to actually figure out who committed the crime. So, and then again, on the flip side, when you're identifying unknown remains, uh, just hearing the stories of families that are so grateful uh, have been reconnected. They don't know what happened to their loved ones and knowing that there's some right. closure they understand what happened. So a lot of those people jump in immediately and every time, every time we work a case, I can tell you that the, the peripheral family and friends and community, they get really excited about wanting to help uh, drive an answer to the next case.
0: What does the process look like of genetic genealogy? So you're contacted by myself. I'm on a police force. I say, "Look, I have a DNA sample. It's it's slightly degraded. It's not perfect. We're not getting any matches." What do you do with that DNA evidence? How, can you walk us through that for you know the average person so that we can understand?
2: Yeah. So so someone will come to us with, with a case uh, from from a law enforcement agency and. Um, It's actually a a pretty lengthy process, uh, you know, and I'm glad you asked, because usually people just care about the answer at the end. But there's a a case review process in which, particularly for these older cases, you can imagine there's been a lot of investigative work. There's been perhaps more than one piece of evidence collected, and and generally this evidence has been tested using a variety of methods. And whether it has successfully or unsuccessfully produced an answer, information has been gathered about the condition, the quality, and testability that evidence so we go through a case review process where we really examine everything that's there before any money is spent, before any evidence is consumed. I have to point out, the number one risk in these kind of projects is you don't want to consume the evidence and get nothing. If you, if you fully consume the evidence, the investigation is, is over. And so we do an extensive paper review. and This is done iteratively over a period of time. Um, we started talking about this particular case last year. And, and work extensively on determining if it was even worth trying to help, because last thing we want to do is get involved and then we make it worse and we don't help. And so once that review is completed, then we'll formally accept. We don't accept all casework. We try to focus on cases that we can help. We uh, take and accept the casework. We take all the information, the lab reports from other labs, uh, you know, failure reports, you know, just data reports, and we use that to basically design a custom approach to get information from that evidence. Uh, And so then we go through our own internal QC process because ultimately you never know what it's like until you have the evidence in your own hand uh, and and you've extracted DNA, you've examined it. And we have a process that we can use, um, something that we're really proud of is we've we've developed a process to basically know if our testing will work. And so we consume only a little bit of evidence and we determine if it's actually going to work. And that's what we call our QC process. Once that process is done, Again, we'll stop and just can't move forward. Once the process is done and we know that we've got a suitable piece of of DNA to work with, then we do a testing process that involves grabbing uh, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of DNA markers uh, across this DNA evidence. So this is very different. Like in traditional forensic testing, you're, you're grabbing perhaps 20 markers. So what we're doing here is we're looking at tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of markers. We collect this information. It's processed through software that we have that allows us to accommodate and adjust for the kind of noise and, uh, and, and kind of de- degraded signal you'll get from a very old piece of DNA that just hasn't been treated you know, in a pristine way. It's very different than, for example, the consumer testing you're talking about, where you're grabbing blobs of DNA out of your cheek or you're spitting into a tube. It's like DNA that's been treated you know, in the reverse, very terribly. Sometimes the DNA has mixtures of multiple people. Sometimes it's contaminated by uh, non-human stuff like bacteria. And so we do all that work in the lab and produce what we call uh, a genetic profile that captures as much uh, of these markers as we can capture. And from there, there's a lot of things we can do, Uh, whether it's to do comparisons, as you noted, uh, with another DNA uh, data point, such as, for example, uh, Calvin's uh, autopsy material, or or whether it's to do a comparison against a genealogical database, which we discussed as well, Um, whether it's simply to learn something about that dna um something about the you know ancestral uh origins and other stuff like that so anything we can do to glean information that would assist uh, law enforcement and then using that information to further refine and narrow down and eliminate uh possibilities until they're left with you know really good candidates and, and back to your original point because I, I kind of missed your, your, your comments uh, in the case of Calvin, they didn't put his DNA into a database. What happened is they just did a one-to-one match. And that's because yeah. when you do the techniques that I described, they're investigational. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're, we're doing a lot of uh, laboratory and computer work to, to lead the candidates, not even suspects, but call them candidate suspects, or candidate identity score for unknown victims. And then what really actually confirms is when you go to a different lab, in this case, the Center for Forensic Science, which does great work up in Toronto, they independently, unrelated to us, perform an entirely different technique using information that they have, and they confirm the answer. So that's, that's the power of the method. Every time we work a case, and one of the reasons, one of the things we think about when we start to work a case is, how will we confirm this using an orthogonal approach? And you have two different groups, I mean, two different techniques, and they get the same answer. Then you can come back to law enforcement and say, they're, they're, you need to look at this. This is something that is, is worth noting. And obviously, even then, DNA is not the uh, the single piece of information that will lead someone to uh, to, to make a conclusion in the investigation. Cause so always, let me
0: uh, ask you this. If I could, if I could try and s- summarize it. So you find out, first of all, it, it, when you're working with... Uh, These, uh, the genetic genealogy, you find, you look at the sample, you find out if the sample's viable, you find out if there's enough of the sample to use without totally destroying the sample so that you can't test it against something later on. If that's a go, then you go ahead and you um, you you find out the genetic code and the markers in the genetic code. Do you then take those and plug them into the database of people that have uploaded their own genetic information? And then from there, you get some hits on, wow, we've got some markers that are uh, firing here. These are similarities. Look at those. Do the, do the police officers then go through those people that they've got hits on? Find out, do an investigation to find out if there's any connections with, in this case, the Jessup family, um, and then, uh, and then, then they move from there to, to compare the DNA uh, directly to someone that they've got a hit on.
2: Yeah, we're, we're skipping the stuff because you you will identify. So the way genealogy works is you look for people that share a lot of markers with you, a lot of a lot of chunks of DNA. If you share a lot of DNA with someone in the same place, then Likely, you have a common ancestor that, that you inherited the DNA from. That's the, that's the premise here. Um, you're, you're, not, you're not getting... You get a list of people that are genetic relatives, and, and I say relatives in, in kind of the, the very broad sense, not the kind of folks you'd have over here necessarily for dinner on the holidays, but the people that are genetically related, because we're all genetic Right, relatives.
0: because, yeah, it's a that, soup. That, that, list,
2: that list of relatives, that doesn't go into an investigation. What happens is you use those genetic relatives to essentially position the unknown person on a family tree, right? You've got, you've got You've got, you know, family trees and, you know, records of people's birth, death, marriages, right? So you've got this construct of a tree, and that describes your genealogical relationship to people. Then you take genetic matches, and you can, if you have enough genetic matches, it's not going to work if you have just one, unless it's very close. Mm-hmm. If you have enough genetic matches, you can essentially use that to thread an unknown person on a tree, because... If you think about it, as you put the person on the tree, um, you know some factual things. If you know where on the tree the known people go, and you know the genetic distance, the relationship distance between the unknown and those people, then, then you should be able to infer, if you've got a complete family tree, um, who, who, who are the likely candidates for that unknown person. So if, for example, you are a second cousin to me, uh, we know from science that you should share a certain quantity of DNA between you and me. And if there are only a finite number of people that should, on a family tree that could be a second cousin from you, then I know through a process of elimination I'll eventually work my way with multiple matches to a scenario where I can position on the tree appropriately, so I'm the same genetic distance from you that I'm supposed to be, but also mm-hmm. like consistent on a tree. And so it's the combination. Just to be very clear, it's the combination of the markers the genetic distance to multiple relatives that essentially cover you on a tree. And then of course the tree,
0: if there's no tree here, then, then there's not a lot to do. So you, need, you need to Right. Find tree. You have to have you the need, information in yeah. the database to construct the tree. Correct. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, th- this strategy that you're using for cold cases, could you use it in fresh, active investigations as well? Could you see this uh, being used uh, in, in cases that, that are active?
2: Yeah, we do. We actually do use them in active investigations. Um, there's no reason to wait 36 years or, or 40 years or you know or longer to work a case. So uh, the way the way things work on our end is we work on cases where the leads have been exhausted. So they've tried CODIS and they don't get an identity. There's no fingerprint comparison. You know, dental records don't. They have nothing. They have nothing that they can use. And and when they're out of leads, uh, at that point we'll take the case. And and we've taken cases you know within a year uh, of them going cold. And some, you know, that have been, you know, decades and decades old. But I think in the future, uh, it is not a good idea to wait uh, 15 years or, or however long. We have another case a couple of weeks ago. We announced in Texas uh, a very similar crime: young girl uh, assaulted and murdered. 46 years no for answers, and we were able to figure it out and help uh, the, the law enforcement in Fort Worth. Uh, identify uh, the person that was responsible. Let me ask you this,
0: Dr. Dr. Middleman. I I unfortunately got to wrap this up. I wish I had more time with you, obviously, but I'm on a clock. How satisfying was it for you to hear about the arrest yesterday and the uh, in this cold case involving Christine Jessup? Or not the arrest, but the conclusion. Obviously, the killer has died, but the conclusion. How satisfying is it for you?
2: We we were really grateful. We were, were a team of 20 people. We were huddled around the TV, watching the press conference, and just So grateful that the family can get a little bit of closure and and hopefully, um, you know, the wrongfully accused feels uh, even more exonerated because we've identified who it is. Um, it's just a feeling of gratitude that we were able to help and get involved and and, and be there at the right time to help with the case. And then also just the relief of knowing that we were able to help. It's a very scary to take on projects such as this one that are so high profile and, and you don't want to make the wrong move and or make things worse, even with the best of intentions. So just relieved and and grateful and and happy that the family can move forward. I don't
0: know if you've heard about this, but James Hobson and his team at Hacksmith Industries and Kitchener did something incredibly cool. They created the world's first retractable plasma based lightsaber and unveiled it last week on his YouTube channel. I figured that's worth a conversation, so we have James on the line right now. James, who are you? Like, this is crazy. Uh,
1: Well, I went to school right here in Kitchener at Conestoga College uh, with a bachelor's of engineering and mechanical systems engineering, and I've been doing YouTube full-time for about five years now.
0: Wow. What is the purpose of your Hacksmith Industries that you started? Tell us a little bit about that before we get into the ins and outs of this lightsaber.
1: Sure. Um, So our YouTube channel is used as a way to inspire youth around the world into science, technology, engineering and math fields. We basically show how cool it is to be an engineer. Our main series is called Make It Real, where we try and take fictional ideas from comics, movies or video games and try and make real working prototypes using real life technology. And we find that's a really inspirational way to uh, get people interested in science.
0: Okay. I have to ask, what came first? The idea that you and a bunch of friends that were super smart wanted to get together and just create pretty cool things uh, or the fact that you know y- you could make a living off the YouTube channel showing how you do this?
1: <laughs> um, so I've been on YouTube since 2006, quite literally a few months after the site was released to the public. I just used it as a way to share videos with friends back then. And then as I went through high school, I got interested in engineering. In college, I started doing bigger projects. i always document them in a video or blog form. And eventually, when YouTube opened up the partner program and kind of said, "Uh, anyone can make money online if you get enough views, I was like, I want to make money online. So I started making weekly videos. I didn't have much traction for the first few years, but I hit a few videos that kind of went viral, and the channel started growing. So in 2015, I was actually able to quit my full-time job as an engineer, and take on YouTube full time. And since then, the channel and company has doubled in size in almost every metric from employees, subscribers, views, and even revenue year over year since we started, which is incredible. Really
0: that is really exciting. So the company's grown to a, a team of 14 employees. Uh your yeah, YouTube have, channel, I understand, has like 10.2 million subscribers?
1: 10.5 now actually. Wow. We, we've added we added almost a million subscribers in the past week now.
0: Okay, so let's let's you know the the first retractable plasma based lightsaber caught my attention, but before that, maybe talk about some projects that just you know just quick list off some projects of uh, that you had done in the past through Hacksmith Industries. Sure.
1: We've done Captain America shield. We've done an Iron Man helmet, Iron Man repulsor, Iron Man plasma cutter. We've done Batman's grappling hook gun. We've done Batarangs. We've done um, a whole bunch of stuff from the video game Overwatch, uh, Half Life. Um, We've done Stormbreaker, Thor's hammers. We've got, done a neuralizer from Men in Black. Um, We've made jetpacks and a all, neuralizer
0: from Men in Black.
1: Yeah, so that one that one didn't quite work. We weren't quite able to uh, erase everyone's <laughs> memories. Erase people's but, memories? Uh, it wasn't <laughs> No, a you know nice what prop, though?
0: I, <laughs> I find whiskey's helpful. Um, but that's only for a 24 hour period. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong. So there's a lot that goes into this. Are are you guys that work at Hacksmith industries? Are you all engineers or are some of you artists or are you a bit of both? Or have you become artists through this process? (laughs)
1: Um, I've definitely become a bit of an artist through the process. Um, our team is probably made up of half engineers and the other half is the media team So, the people who film the video um plan the video and do all the editing and whatnot
0: yeah it's serious i mean what you're doing is you know i was talking to my husband about this afterwards we watched the video last night and then you know we're eating over dinner you're throwing out little uh tidbits of you know a conversation and i said to him you know like i honestly don't know it looks so fun working there i you know is this an entertainment um situation like are they making entertainment or are they doing science but i guess it's a bit of both so let's get to the world's uh first retractable plasma lightsaber whose idea was it to to create it
1: (laughs) um so we've we've been working on various lightsaber designs for the past four years now because obviously the lightsaber is probably the pinnacle of sci-fi tech and one of those things that pretty much anyone would be like i wish that was real yeah, because so, we've all grabbed uh, one of
0: those um, wrapping paper tubes after our parents, you know, at Christmas time, and you start to, like, use it as a lightsaber around the living room.
1: Yep. So, uh, 2016, we started experimenting. And the cool thing is, in Star Wars lore, before there were lightsabers, there were sabers, And a saber is just a lightsaber, but with the power pack externally mounted. So, quite literally, a corded lightsaber. Which is okay, quite amusing, and that's what you mean. Yeah, but it also gives us an avenue to actually make it where it's actually practical and possible. Because the reality is, the lightsabers demonstrated in the movies would use such an astronomical amount of power. I don't think even in a hundred years we'll be able to have that kind of energy density available to us in just the hilt of a lightsaber.
0: Okay, so how do you power it wall, it, that? <laughs> yeah, how do you power this 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 lightsaber?
1: Um, so the original designs used electricity, and we actually pumped about 30 kilowatts of power into our hybrid ProtoSaber design, which used a tungsten titanium solid blade. So that one wasn't retractable, and it was using up as much power as um, a house with all circuits loaded.
0: Good thing you have a lot of YouTube video uh, you, <laughs> you know, subscribers.
1: Yeah. Um, the new one, however, is um, actually powered by liquid propane gas. So, quite literally, the same stuff that's in your barbecue tank right now.
2: Really? In
1: addition to that, it uses uh, oxygen as the oxidizer. And basically, the two gases flow through a laminar flow nozzle um, from the glass blowing industry. So, wow. the core tech in the lightsaber is something that was already created, it's already used in the industry. Uh, they're very expensive. You're looking at over $4,000 just for this nozzle. But basically, it allows for laminar flow of the gas, which means you can get up to about a 28-inch long blade of um, fire, basically.
0: And how hot does it burn? uh,
1: About 4,000 Fahrenheit or 2,200 Celsius. Which means it will melt pretty well any metal except for, say, tungsten.
0: Yeah, which your next video, by the way, so your first video that you uploaded last week about to introduce the world's first retractable plasma beam, uh, you know, you say, okay, we're going to test it out. And then yesterday you released the test video where you're cutting through doors and you're, you know, uh, sawing through uh, walls, steel walls. Can you, I have to ask, did you create this just so you could wreck things?
1: (laughs) That is a very fun byproduct of my job. It's very stress relieving. Uh, a lot of our projects, we get to do some kind of um, destruction montage where we demonstrate how effective it is, and uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> Give us an idea of how many things you you ripped through using that new lightsaber on the video you uploaded yesterday.
1: Uh, we did some walls, some stormtroopers, uh, sheets of metal. We cooked some ribs, cooked a turkey. I cut a car into pieces, uh, um, uh, we tested against a Captain America shield actually, and How uh, spoiler, the lightsaber won. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course it's going to win. I have to ask you because there's a jet pack uh, on this or, or like a power pack on it, uh, which is, reminds me of Ghostbusters. Did you cross <laughs> the streams and what happens if you cross the streams? or is that so for another we, video. We haven't
1: built a second plasma lightsaber yet, so we haven't been able to test, but I assume they would kind of um, become one and probably be a bit fiery. So, if you cross the midway, they wouldn't continue extending, they would stop at the point that they hit each other and I guess we'll have to see yeah. when we build another one.
0: Yeah, that's not so much fun. You have to do some more, uh, you know, tests on this and, and, and more videos. <laughs> Listen, uh, can you direct us to where we'd find you? Because I think we probably pique some interest for people that, you know, would love to subscribe to your channel.
1: Sure. Uh, so you can find us on pretty much any social platform if you search for uh, Hacksmith. We're at YouTube.com slash The Hacksmith or Instagram at The Hacksmith, Twitter. You name it, you'll find us.
0: All right, James, what's your next project?
1: Um, We're working on a Back
0: to the Future hoverboard, actually. Come on. So excited. Okay, we're going to have to talk again. I appreciate your time and have yourself a fantastic weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I really appreciate your time. As always, don't forget, we broadcast live for three hours daily, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Tune in if you can. Otherwise, hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast and have a great day.